While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Sometimes I do a true crime story, and this is a good one. When I started this, I had no idea where this was going to turn out. Let's start in Nashville with a fellow named George Harsh, who we will later know as George Harsh Sr. Harsh was an orphan struggling to find work. He founded Selling Shoes. The shoe business took him to St. Louis, then Milwaukee, where he started his own shoe company. In 1909, his son was born into a family which had become one of the wealthiest in Milwaukee. George Rutherford Harsh Jr. would never have to struggle like his father had and would never know poverty or hunger. George Sr. was a respected member of the community, a man who sold shoes at cost to the army during World War I and who worked toward bettering the city's school system. That made it more of a tragedy when he died of brain cancer in 1921. He was 53 and his son was 12. Harsh, that's George Harsh Jr., had inherited about a quarter million dollars, and in 1923, he withdrew from school to travel the world with his mother. He discovered that he liked money, liked traveling, and especially liked alcohol. One problem, though, he was a mean drunk. Now, remember, he's something in the neighborhood of 15 or 16 when he finds out how much he likes booze. He finished high school and began at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta. He was still drinking, but he was developing other interests, mostly cars and guns. A former girlfriend told the press that when driving around Atlanta, Harsh would sometimes spot a bird or a small animal and wish out loud that he had a gun. Add it together. A drink, a car, and a gun. Shooting out streetlights was fun, but there were better thrills in store. Eventually, Harsh, a friend named Richard Galugli, and about two others concocted a plan to rob a local store. One would drive, one would stay outside as a lookout, and two would enter the store and commit the robbery. The first try apparently went well, but a robbery at an A&P store turned south when one of the store clerks pulled their gun. Harsh and the clerk fired at each other, and when the boys jumped into their car to escape, Harsh had suffered a minor bullet wound. One A&P employee was hit by mistake and wounded, and the one who pulled the gun was seriously hurt. He would actually die the next day. It didn't deter the small gang, and they went on to pull more robberies. On their seventh robbery, the clerk at the drugstore was quick with his gun and shot Harsh in the leg. Harsh fired back and killed him. Harsh was taken to the hospital, but for some reason, nobody seemed to make an issue of a college student with a bullet wound in the leg. One account says that Harsh explained it away as an injury from a fight with a fellow student. Over the next few days, whenever someone asked about his limp, he would respond that he'd fallen with a glass whiskey bottle in his pocket. Pretty much everybody accepted that explanation, until the maid, who had been given Harsh's trousers to clean, saw a bullet hole, and then she showed them to the police. 
George Harsh was on his way to a Georgia Tech football game 11 days after the killing when he was pulled over and arrested. He was taken to the police station and sang like a canary. He also pointed the police to his friend Galugli, and I'm just guessing that that's how that's pronounced, but he was also arrested. Harsh received the best, and since he'd already confessed the most desperate defense money could buy. The lawyers blamed everyone. His father's death, whiskey, privilege, a parade of doctors tried to prove that Harsh wasn't in full possession of his faculties. Any expert who could be hired was hired. But to the jury, Harsh was a rich kid who felt he could get away with murder. Remember, even that first death didn't deter him from continuing his crime spree. Fifteen minutes of deliberation and Harsh was guilty and sentenced to death. His friend Richard Galugli was tried twice with no verdict. Eventually, a deal was struck in which Galugli would plead guilty and receive a life sentence. For providing testimony against his friend, Harsh's sentence was commuted to life. Okay, are you still with me? This is where things start to get interesting. Harsh's autobiography starts with him at age 20, his second year on the chain gang. He describes the hard work and the punishments and also describes a fight with a fellow inmate over a stolen bar of soap that ended with Harsh's third killing. Luckily for him, anyone who may have witnessed the murder didn't speak up and there were no consequences. So, while he was in prison, he killed a man and aided another prisoner's escape, but happened to be in the right place at the right time during an ice storm. A prisoner needed an emergency appendectomy, and none of the doctors could be raised on the phone. Harsh had been working in the medical wing for a while and had picked up a general medical knowledge, enough to successfully remove the man's appendix. One of the prison doctors wrote a letter to the governor and George Harsh, who had been sentenced to death for two murders as part of a seven-robbery crime spree and who didn't even need the money and had done those robberies for fun, was pardoned after 12 years in prison. The governor declared that there could not be one justice for the rich and one for the poor, and specifically said that Harsh had been in prison for taking a life, then had balanced the scales by saving a life. Something somewhere must have made the governor lose track of that other life that was lost during the robberies. Harsh's lawyers announced that he would attend medical school after his release and that he looked forward to a lifetime of easing human suffering. But George didn't do that. He continued drinking and began looking for any honest work he was qualified to do. He describes being approached by some friends from prison and being offered a job as an enforcer for their gambling ring. The money was attractive, but the prospect of being sent back to prison wasn't. Harsh left town for Montreal, where he made friends who suggested a new career path. He was taken downtown and inducted into the Royal Canadian Air Force. Americans could do that back then. 
He spent two years flying for the RCAF over Europe. Seriously, I'm, I'm not making this up. Aren't you glad you stayed with the episode this long? But it gets even better. He was shot down over Cologne and went back to jail, but this time the Nazis were holding the keys. While at a POW camp called Stalag Luft 3, he was informed of a plot to dig an escape tunnel. Harsh was recruited to manage security for the effort. He had, after all, spent 12 years in prison, and prisoners become pretty good at keeping track of guards and knowing when their backs are turned. He spent a year working at a system to track the guards while prisoners dug and dumped sand. He describes this in his autobiography, but that's from his point of view. If you want the whole story, you can read a book called The Great Escape by Paul Brickhill. Harsh wrote the introduction to that book. In the 1963 movie with Steve McQueen, Harsh is represented in the character of Sandy McDonald. Harsh did not participate in the escape. Not everyone could get through the tunnel in one night. 80 men escaped. 27 were returned to the camp. 5 escaped to allied countries. And 50 were captured and shot. As a possible collaborator, Harsh and a few others were sent to a punishment camp. The liberation of his prison camp closes his autobiography. As we finish up, this is just a reminder that Moving Through Georgia is a Georgia history podcast that focuses on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please direct them to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com and if you like what you hear, consider leaving a review or five stars. That'll get the message out to more people. After the war, he published his book and wrote a piece for the New York Times against capital punishment. He always maintained that his family's money kept him from being executed. He is very honest in his book. He has no problem saying that as long as the family's money held out, he held no chance of being executed. He also didn't see the escape attempt as some sort of big wartime adventure. He actually was against it from the beginning, and in the end, he saw the whole effort as a waste of 50 good lives. Although any captured Allied soldiers would be expected to at least try to escape from a POW camp, Harsh felt that their greater responsibility was to win the war, and the escape did nothing in that regard. It's a thoughtful and well-considered opinion made after the fact. However, before anyone actually climbed into a tunnel, there were a lot of other factors to consider. Some of the officers would have been shot by their liberators if the Russians made it to the camp first. Either way, those soldiers knew the risks, and they made the decision to go ahead and escape. George Harsh died in 1980, at the age of 74. That's all.